and I hope you've had a good week. If you've been here all week, I just got up this morning, so it's nice to be here. You uh, hopefully are in the right seminar, prayer three disappointment. I will not be disappointed if you leave now, because you're in the wrong seminar, I will pray about it. Um, uh, I, I want to share a little bit uh, today, really my own story, um, and then just some ways that I've learned to pray my way through my own personal really disappointment. And I hope that that will be helpful for you. Uh, so uh, I'm going to start by doing that in a moment. Uh, I like to start when I tell my story by just uh, framing it biblically, if you like, and what I would describe as a, a kingdom theology. I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in what the theologians talk about. They call it, they talk about the, the eschatological tension. Don't be put up with that big word, but it's basically. The kingdom is both now and not yet, that Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom and the good news that he came proclaiming was uh, that the kingdom was now, that something had broken into the world. Because the king had arrived on the earth, the kingdom was breaking in, and through Jesus' death and resurrection, he um, fulfilled the victory, conquered sin and death and hell, and uh, that told us to get on with the proclamation of that kingdom. We, we know also, however, in a world, particularly at the moment, with the scars that we feel in our own lives and as we look around the world in which we live, we, we also realize that the prince of the power of the age still is the, the, the devil, the enemy, in a sense. And, um, and the full consummation of the victory of that kingdom we await. And so we live in this tension of leaning in, I think, to the kingdom which is now, pursuing that, giving our lives to it, longing to see it come, praying as the Lord taught us to, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, but acknowledging that the full victory has still to, to come. I'm a Liverpool supporter. Uh, I liken sometimes this to uh, the torture of having to grow up as a, as a Liverpool supporter, as a young boy, and watch Man United win the league for far too many years in a row and often they would win it wouldn't they where where before the final game of the season they had already won but they had to still play out the games before the actual trophy was lifted and uh, sometimes i think that you know it's a little bit just of a of a of an analogy for the where, where we live now and i think that's really really important because i suppose as i share my story i, I want us to anchor all our stories there uh, I really don't want my story to invalidate <laughs> yours today. There's the danger when people share their stories or their testimonies that we over compare or we think ours is gonna work out the same way and all of that kind of thing. And it's really important for me that that doesn't happen today, but that hopefully you feel invited in. Your story feels invited into the big story of God where all our stories find fit. Because when we hold that tension quite robustly to both the now and the not yet, then everybody's story fits. If we move to the extremes of that sort of theology, then what happens is we, we say nobody, uh, if, if, we, if we move to the extremes and say it's all happening now, everyone gets healed, then everybody's story doesn't fit. And, and, and equally, if we move to the other extreme and say nobody does, then some of our stories don't fit either. But in, in God's story, all of our stories find meaning, all of our stories find a place, uh, and all of our stories are validated because we have a <coughs> Heavenly Father who he loves us and interested in us and wants to bring beauty out of our lives. You see a great example of it right throughout the Bible, but I love to, I'll not take time to turn to it, but in Second Corinthians chapter 12, you'll know the verse where it says, where Paul says that he, um, 
had a thorn in the flesh. He asked a number of times for it to be taken away, and it wasn't. And God spoke to him and said, My grace is going to be sufficient for you in your weakness. And we know that verse quite well. But a few, a few verses on, um, what we don't see in verse 12, he talks about still being with the Corinthians and how the signs of the apostle were accompanied among you with all perseverance in signs and in wonders and mighty deeds. And so here's this incredible man of God struggling with answers to prayer in his own life, but pressing ahead in all perseverance, seeing signs and wonders and mighty deeds accomplished. And that's the kind of life we're called to. Yeah? In this world we will have troubles. Yeah, but fear not because we are more than conquerors, we're more than overcomers, yeah, because Jesus is overcoming. So it's really, really important, I think, that we just hold our stories in that place. Is that okay? By way of introduction. I was um, <coughs> around about 21, 22, and uh, I was quite involved in our own little church at the time. And this girl uh, arrived one Sunday morning and uh, caught my eye. Um, started to think about her quite a bit. Um, uh, hoped she was thinking about me but wasn't sure uh, didn't really do anything about it for months and months and months prayed about it asked the Lord if it was right that it might happen all that kind of thing and she was called Lindsay uh, uh, I uh, was quite involved in the church so I was trying my best not to like you know mess something up <laughs> you know and um, I uh, anyway slowly but surely we sort of fancied each other, fell in love, started to go, I plucked up the courage to uh, ask her for a conversation, uh, text her when phones had just about come in, it was amazing, mobile phones, and uh, was able to um, accidentally sort of, maybe like, do you want to like, kind of like, sort of like, maybe want to go out, sort of, for a coffee, chat, yeah, and uh, so we started to do that anyway, long story short, we um, started to go out, fell in love. We decided to get married um, a number of years later. I was 25 when we got married, she was 21. We really, really wanted to serve God together. We both were quite free-spirited. We um, and had incorporated the words of John chapter 3, where Jesus says, the spirit's like the wind. No one knows where it blows from. No one knows where it blows to. But you can feel it, you can hear it, you, you, you know it. And then uh, we incorporated that into our vows. And we said vows to each other at the front of the church, which were along those lines, how we wanted to love one another in such a way that we'd be blown by the wind wherever the Lord wanted to take us. The seals were up. The, 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 we weren't holding tightly really to anything in life other than what he wanted to do with us. Uh, we didn't have an awful lot. We had uh, one uh, little bedroom apartment but we were just excited about living adventurously together and for for Jesus. And uh, so the first couple of, for the first year, so we, we travelled quite a bit when we got when we got married. And um, and in 2006, we both Africa had both had gotten under both our skins in different ways. I had lived there for a year when I left school in South Africa, and then I'd been back to different countries and mission trips and stuff, Ghana and Uganda, and back to South Africa. And Lindsay had lived in Burkina Faso, and she'd lived in South Africa for a while during her university days and, and so we're really excited about once we got married about doing something in mission together in Africa and not just for like a couple of weeks on a mission trip but wouldn't it be great to like connect our hearts with something long term that we could journey with together and so in 2006 10 years ago this summer we went to uh, we went to Uganda again 
took 40 people from our church, Emmanuel and Lurgan, and we connected with a, a, a wonderful little pastor called Pastor Richard, connected with Foods of Life, some of you know the organization, and then um, he, uh, he, he was just a wonderful man, we just had a brilliant time, he had 300 kids in a primary school, we helped build a kitchen, we started to come home, when we came home we started to support them and feed the children of the school and we really felt the Lord had connected and knitted our hearts together with this this uh, little pastor and just a really enriching time and more than that we we really wanted to build him in the long term a secondary school because many of the kids that were coming to the primary school weren't getting the chance to go on to a secondary school and a lot of the input that had been placed in them and embedded into them in their primary school was being lost because they couldn't afford to go to secondary school or they were being um, uh, you know, just having to go to the city or something where they were they were losing that influence. And so we started to think about that, but we thought it was like a major sort of 10, 20 year plan ahead. We have to raise lots of money to do that. But when we got home uh, around August, September, Tim Lindsay began to take really sore heads. And for a month or so, we tried to really get to the bottom of it. We couldn't work out what it was, been to the doctor, different tests, different checkups. And, we went to uh, the Royal eventually because it just said, I think you just need to go and get a scan because we can't really go to the, get to the bottom of this. And, um, and when we went to the uh, to the hospital uh, in the Royal, uh, they did a scan on a Monday afternoon and uh, we came back with the news that there was a growth in our brain, which we didn't really know what it meant, but we started to realize that was code for brain tumor. Uh, that was on a Monday afternoon. And, uh, and so we were back down that night and she was uh, operated on that Friday. Watched her kind of be taken into the, the surgery to see her, knowing that her, they were gonna open up her brain, basically, and try and get rid of this tumor. And so the, the operation went relatively well. She came out of that. It's obviously a difficult time, as you can imagine. She uh, uh, recovered, started to recover quite well. The, the, the surgeon said he felt he'd done a really good job, but. Crucially, it only got 95% of it, not all of it. He said it was a grade three tumor. It was a benign form of malignant tumor, whatever that means. And uh, and he told us in his words to get on with doing what we wanted to do with our lives, have kids, travel, fulfill your dreams. I hope this will come back. But within a few months, uh, Lindsay had a couple of seizures. She was... Um, rushed back into the hospital by Christmas that year. Another round of brain surgery. And then we entered into six weeks of radiotherapy, chemotherapy, someone has been there. And, uh, and after Christmas, she probably just got worse and worse and worse. And so I found myself at like 27 years of age, just um, looking after basically and, and a, a wife who couldn't do anything for herself, feeding her, washing her, taking her to the bathroom, all of that kind of stuff. And uh, I give a prayer, I prayed like I'd never prayed before. I fasted for 14, never ate anything for two weeks, cried out to God, to Peter. Had the whole whole church was praying. Many of you maybe you knew me, just the way it is in Northern Ireland, isn't it? We, we, uh, we know people that know people, you know, and uh, we're new Christians that know Christians. People were praying all over the country. She was getting worse. Uh, and yet, in the midst of it, we were experiencing incredible peace from, from God, hoping that she's going to be okay. Around sort of the middle of April, I sat beside her bed one day and I said, God, I have nothing else to give you. I have done everything I can do. I prayed, I fasted, I sought you. 
and it's not it's not getting better. God, I, I don't know what to do. I'm not giving up because He calls me to to love my wife as Christ loved the church. God, I'm going to give everything, and this is not me resigning myself to anything. I'm going to fight, fight, fight right to the end. But God, somewhere in this, I need to kind of acknowledge your your sovereignty, your your goodness, and. I think I'm rolling you close at the moment, God, but I know that you love her more than I do. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving her to you, but God, and it was like my own Gethsemane, yeah? And uh, I, I cried this out to God, wrote the prayer in my journal. But a week later, on a Sunday morning, the 22nd of April 2007, she, uh, she died. I woke up at half past six in the morning and watched her take a number of deep, deep breaths, and then she just stopped. And uh, and so I, I just couldn't believe she died. I didn't think she was going to die. Um, I was hoping against hope that she wouldn't, but uh, she did. And so on that morning, I was thrust from because all the prayers that people have been praying had allowed me to love somebody like I never thought you could love somebody. Like I was just a typical boy, right? I just wanted to marry a girl that fancy and hope it kept on seeing her for the rest of my life, right? That I was just like, I was pretty shallow probably, right? Pretty superficial. But whatever happened in her sickness, I learned how to love somebody like I never thought you could love somebody. When I could get nothing back from her, my heart was swelling with love and with love and with love. And I think it was galvanized by all the prayers of God's people. And, and so it felt like in that, purity of that love I touched a glimpse of, of heaven so when she died it felt like I was touching a glimpse of hell because I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if hell's going to be all the kind of images that we have in our head around you know fiery flames and being scorched and all of this I think it's going to be complete separation from love separation from love and that's a tormenting tormenting place to be and, uh, and I felt like I started to glimpse that, and so I just was thrust into a pain beyond what I thought was you could feel. I didn't think it was possible to feel the level of pain that I started to feel. I didn't think that I was going to make it through the day. And my uncle, who had lost his wife the year before, told me just try and split the day into threes, right? Try and get the lunch. If you can get the lunch, try and get the pecan. If you can get the tea, you'll maybe try, try and make it so you go to bed. And then the long, lonely nights where we used to say the tears would run out of your eyes and down into your ears. We used to talk about the nights of tears in your ears where all you were left with was a, an ear full of tears where sounds and eggs came out of your mouth that you never thought were possible to make because you couldn't find words to express. And so I remember sitting back in my mum and dad's house, it's 27 year old, and my one of my sisters who had all moved out of their house, uh, all moved out of, my three sisters had all moved out and got married in the years previous. So it was back in one of my sister's old rooms, which her mum hadn't got redecorated yet, it was pink and it was purple. And uh, all the contents of Lindsay and I's house were sitting around my feet. And I just remember thinking, I'm 27 years old, I'm a widower. Living with my mum and dad again. I don't want this to be my story. But it is. But how can I get out of this story of my life? How can I get out of this? And there was no way to 
to get out. This this was my story. And I don't know if any of you have ever been there in different circumstances in your life, but sometimes you just get to the point in life where you just think, God, I, this was not the script I intended for my life. This was not the storyline that I was thinking it would become, but, but it was. And soon I realized in the midst of that, while it was uh, all I wanted to do was really crawl in a ball and, and, and give up, it was I had a choice to make. I had a choice to make. Was I going to just do that, give up? Or was I going to try and somehow believe God for some kind of reason why I was still alive? I, I wanted, it felt like I had died as well. I don't know if you, when you were young, the best way I can describe it, you know when you were young and you have like, uh, uh, in school, that you mix two colors of plaster scene together and then you get like told off and you tried to separate the two colors. It's really hard to take one color out without taking shreds of the other color as well. And I suppose that's the beauty of marriage, isn't it? The beauty of deep covenant oneness. You know, that's what the God gifts us with, and I suppose is a sign of his relationship to us. And so it felt like when Lindsay died, that so much of me died as well. And so I was trying my best to try and find a way that I still had a purpose in life because I just wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to give up. I didn't know whether I was going to live or whether I was going to die to make the choice to try and find God in it. And so. I started to find and try and find a way to get my way out of this, okay? So that, that's my story, and what, what I want to do now is try and just describe six or seven points for you of how I prayed my way through into a place of wholeness and healing, where I can stand here today and testify with a smile on my face about the goodness of God. It's all right? So I'm going to take you through a few, a few of these points now. First, first of all, I, I, so I, I hope that's that's where I had found myself. How on earth was I going to get myself out of that? What I, what I want to ask you today is, how did you, um, or where, where, where you are in your story, I mean, what's going on with your life, the secret kind of grief that you're carrying in your heart, the loss that you've never fully grieved, the disappointment of God that you've never fully expressed, the dream that never has got fully fulfilled, that you have squeezed and pushed down and never talked about, how, how did we bring that before the Lord, right? Because we, you know, I am a church leader and I love the church and I don't like to talk negatively about it in any way. But what I would say is we're not very good at this. We're not, we're not very good at providing a space for people to grieve and for people to lament and for people to protest and for people to ask why, yeah? We're not brilliant at it, and so I hope that this might help today. And so the first, first thing I want to say, wherever you are, is there is permission to be honest today. There is permission to grieve, right? Yeah. I realized if I wanted to move beyond this place totally free, without carrying any sense of um, bitterness and cynicism, without growing old as just a, a, a cynical, angry old man, I was going to have to be fully honest. I was going to have to fully grieve. It's going to take courage. It's going to take vulnerability to do that. It's going to take you being honest, but ultimately it's the road to healing. I had to recognize that pain isn't the enemy. Pain is just pain. Pain is pain. And we will feel it and we need to express it. Sickness, death is the enemy that Jesus has conquered. So I'm not... I'm not saying that we should cozy up to that or we should, you know, in some way 
you know, glorify suffering as some kind of virtue. I don't believe that. But the pain that we will feel in this world is 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 real. And and we need to not run away from that. We need to find ways to express it. Often pain is a sign that our hearts are still beating. The alternative is to be numb and feel nothing. And so it's not to be avoided, but it is to be expressed. Things like this, things that of this level of acute pain, things of this level of magnitude, it's not of, of, of agony of soul. It's not so much, people say, oh, you just have to go through it. Thing, things that are this big, it's, it's not so much that you have to go through it. It has to go through you. We have to allow these things sometimes to work their way through us and give ourselves the space to do that. Because listen to this, this is a really important thing, I think. Pain is not pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. Pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. You can press it down, suppress it, think that it's not affecting you, but somebody else will get it somewhere. Yeah? So somebody else will get your anger. Somebody else will feel the force of your disappointment. Someone else will lose the contribution that you're making to life because you've given up. Yeah? Pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. And so the last thing I wanted to do, and believe me, the last thing I wanted to do was face my pain. But I knew unless I faced it, unless I stirred the darkness in the eye and realized I didn't have to be intimidated by it, unless I stirred it in the eye, I could not be fully healed. And so I want to encourage you to face your, your, to face whatever disappointment you're carrying. All my disappointment, my anger, my questions of the injustice I was feeling inside of why Lindsay got so short of life. How could it be any better that she's not alive in this world? Would she loved you? She was passionate about the poor. How could it be any better? What is this all about? How can you how, how can you not have stopped this? My mom uh, taught me uh, because I loved football and played it most of my life. When I was about eleven years old, I was playing for the local team. They trained on a Monday night. I was brought up in the countryside and went to a little gospel hall uh, children's meeting on a Monday night. Big decision to make: football training on a Monday night or the Monday night meeting. So my mom said to me. Um, she showed me the verse in scripture that says, "If you if you honor God, He will honor you." And so, in my uh, conscientiousness, I decided I would go to the night meeting, right? And uh, I decided to do that. But I still got picked to play every Saturday, which was relatively unheard of if you didn't train. And so, my mom taught me at ten or eleven, whatever age it was, years of age, that if you honor God, Son, He'll honor you. But what I didn't realize is that I had built my theological framework for life on this principle, if I honor God, he would honor me, which is obviously true, right? I just didn't realize how much of an agenda I had when I prayed that prayer. Because when Lindsay died, I was like, God, what's all about? I've, I've honored you. I waited for this girl. I wanted to serve you with her. I haven't been squeaky clean all my life, but for the most part, God, I've I tried to wait for the one that you had for me and give myself completely to you and live for you fully and you give me 18 months. 18 months. Seriously, seriously, God. 18 months with the one that 
quickly. And I knew that if I didn't, and this is the hardest part, right? Because I, I actually still love God. I'd known too much of his love in my years growing up to just know that he didn't love me. But I just was so disappointed with him. And my own dad used to sit on the end of my bed at night when I went and said, son, if there's nothing to say, but if I could just take this for you, I would take it in my own body. And I was thinking, but God, where are you? My own dad wouldn't do this to me. But what on earth is this all about? How could you take her from me? How could you not have stopped this? And, and I started to realize that if I was going to be able to ever one day do what I'm doing right now, I need to be true to my opinion. I needed to be true to the disappointment that I was feeling. I wasn't going to fake it. I wasn't going to turn around and just use little religious glib phrases like glory to God, all things work together for good, just for the sake of saying those sort of things, if it wasn't really the life reality that I was feeling in that moment. And I, I started to realize that I couldn't actually control the grief anymore and that needed to be expressed. And I started to find comfort. <coughs> this is what I'm really passionate about you taking from this today. I started to find comfort or at least, maybe not, maybe not even comfort at this point yet, but I started to find connection with the scriptures. Because while most of the songs that we sing in our churches are about triumph, and that's really important, uh, and I love a good time of worship where we do that, what I started to realize is the Bible was full of lament and honest cries from people that would not allow their grief to be hidden. They knew that if something needed expressed, it needed expressed before God. We have a choice today. Will we let our pain fall before the face of God? Or will we keep it behind us or he can't get there? That's the question that I suppose I want to challenge us with today. Will we pour it out before the Father? Or will we hold it at a place where he can't get there? I found comfort particularly in the Psalms, but in other places, Job, Lamentations, particularly, but Psalm 22, my insides are turned inside out. Spectres of death have me down. I shake with fear. I shudder from head to foot. Who will give me wings so that I can get out of here on dove wings? I want some peace and quiet. I want to walk in the country, I want a cabin in the world. I'm desperate for a change from this rage and stormy weather. I started to realize that the scriptures give us a language when we don't have one for ourselves in times of grief. They are what I call soul articulation when we can't articulate themselves. Because all we've actually got sometimes is agonizing groans. And the psalmists give us words to try and articulate what we're actually feeling inside. And so permission to be honest. The second thing which kind of ties in is allow this honesty, recognize this honesty as prayer. Right? My prayers in this time of grief were different than any kind of prayer I'd ever prayed before. And so all, all the questions that I just alluded to that I was asking God there, I felt, and maybe you're feeling even as I said them, can you say that to God? I've never prayed like that before, but as Eugene Peterson says, it's better to pray badly than not to pray at all. You know, when you're reading Psalms, it tells us that uh, 
which one is it? The, the one about Psalm 133, uh, the, 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 by the rivers of Babylon, Psalm. And it says, uh, when they're in exile, how we wish to dash the heads of your little ones against the rocks. Have you ever heard anyone pray that in your prayer meeting? God, I, I hate this person so much at the minute that I'd like to whack the head of its child against the rock. This is in the Bible. It's not as domesticized and as sanitized as we think it is. And that's not to say they did that. Because the Israelites knew that if emotion needed expressed, it needed expressed before God. It needed expressed before the face of the Father who can take it and can deal it and can transform it. They knew where to channel their disappointment. They knew where to channel their hatred. They knew where to channel their sense of grief and protest. Where did they channel it? Right before the face of the Father. It was all prayer. And in that place, it could be transformed. And so I tried to direct my honest cries upwards, not just outwards. I wanted to face it before God. I chose to try and deal with this pain in front of my father and to express that disappointment. I learned quickly I had to do this because the reality was as much as I had issues if that's the way to put it with God at that moment, I still knew he was the only one who could heal me. Because nobody else could. Nobody else could fix it for me. And that's where I found help in in the scriptures. They got me in a way that nobody else and nothing else could. They, they connected with me. They, they didn't allow me to settle for the cute little religious platitudes. Do you know those things that we get when people die? Do you know those horrible cards that we get about a rose threat, you know, coming up some other side of a wall and all that? And she's not really beside you. She's just in another room. When you're dealing with grief that, that acute, those kind of things don't really mean anything. In fact, I, in fact, while it was... The people used to say to me, at least you know where she is. And all I could say is, at the minute all I know where she isn't. And she's not she's not beside me in bed. She's not with my hand when I'm watching TV. She's not beside me when I go for a walk. I, I needed words that got that. Does that make sense? I needed words to get that level. And, the, and this is what I'm really, really, really passionate about. The Bible does. The Bible gets this level of pain. In the Old Testament scriptures in particular, and as we come to see more than ever in the words of our Savior on the cross, why have you forsaken me? Dad, where are you? This is this is this is right in the middle of the Bible. And so I, I want to encourage you practically, I found help in the contemplative traditions of the church as well. I found church history there's been people who've experienced this kind of thing um, sometimes some of the modern stuff we read not all of it some of it just doesn't get the same depth some of the best stuff that we have in church history is gets this kind of stuff and so i found help in the contemplative traditions of life that helped me articulate they give me prayers to pray when i didn't have to pray them augustine st john's cross all these kind of people uh, if you'd like me to point in direction, talk to me afterwards. And, and sometimes in those lonely nights, I found I found my own language, find my own tongue to connect with God in the eerie stillness of the night. 
and uh, I came to realize that the darker the night, the brighter the stars, the deeper the grief, the closer is God. The third thing was that I realized that in doing these first two points, right, and having a permission to grieve and be honest, and realizing that this honesty was a prayer, I realized that because of these, God was present in our suffering. This is an awesome, awesome truth. Like, you know the way we talk about being present. I'm the kind of guy when sometimes, to my shame, when my wife's having a conversation with me and I'm agreeing, I'm not fully present. Yeah? Uh, I'm watching football or something, or thinking about something throughout the day, and uh, that's not a very good thing, right? People that, uh, people that can give you the gift of their presentness, that is an incredible gift. I don't know if you've had the privilege of ever talking to somebody over a cup of coffee or whatever, and you feel in that moment that they got you. It was more than what they said in return, but they, they got you. They, they were fully present. You felt when you left their company, they fully heard what I said. And uh, I realized in, in, in my time of grief that God fully gets us. And that's why we can pray through disappointment. The, the emphasis is in the word present. He, he, he comes, and even when it's silent and it's dark, he is, he is present. The God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, draws close and envelopes in his presence, but he comes and makes himself present. Psalm 18 says, a wonderful verse that helped me a lot was, He makes the darkness his secret place. He came and made my darkness his secret place. Below all the emotion, the words, the anger, the disappointment, below all of that, below all the stuff I was expressing as I lay in bed at night on my own or as I walked the roads, he was there. It's hard to describe, but he was there. He was present. Why is he there? Why can't he be there? Because he's qualified to be present because he has suffered in ways beyond what we can imagine. And he has embodied in himself all not just the sin of the world but all the consequences of sin in the world in his own body jesus has embodied the pain and sin and brokenness of the world that well-known verse is there surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows in jesus god embodied the brokenness of the world in himself and so he actually feels what we Fails. We see this throughout the scripture sheet back in Exodus chapter 3, don't we? Moses in the burning bush. I have heard the cry of my children and it has come up before me and I will come down and deliver them. God feels our pain. It's what some of the Jewish theologians call the pathos of God. God feels our pain. It's not just some mechanical transaction. He's a father. And so I want to say this. I think this is important. We need to let our image of God shape our pain and how we deal with it and not allow our pain to shape our image of God. I said again, because this really affects how we pray. We need to let our image of God shape our pain and not let our pain shape our image of God. You see, if God's just a headmaster to you, your pain doesn't mean much to him. He's just, like, trying to make sure everything's still working right. 
if God's just a, poli- a policeman to you, or sort of mor- a moral sort of upstanding person in society, if that's all he is, he, he, there'll be a stoic way in which you deal with your pain that doesn't really get to the very heart of it. You see, if God is a father, even even one that you may be disappointed in, about him, but if God is a father who loves you, who's committed to you, and knows the number of prayers in your head, and captures every tear in his bottle, that starts to shape how you will deal with the pain. See, I used to get a lot more frustrated because when people said things like, oh, well, at least we know God's in control. It's like, I know God's in control. I, I know he's in control. And it's good to know that God's in control ultimately because it's good to know when we're a bit of a mess that he's, he's not in many ways. But in saying that, I needed to know that God was with me in this, that God was suffering with me in this. And sometimes I think that we um, we, we, we allow our pain to overemphasize a mechanical understanding of who God is. But love this poem, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but you did stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thy alone. This is the Jesus of the scars. This is the Jesus who turns up in his resurrected body with holes in his hands and his feet. Yeah, This is the Jesus who is not just the God omnipotent, all-powerful. He is all of those things. He holds the world in the palm of his hands, but he is our wounded healer. He is the one that suffered in ways beyond that we could imagine so that when we are suffering we can have confidence that he is feeling and understanding and present present not not just watching down from heaven but in, in some mysteriously wonderful way he's present in the pain and I, I want to encourage you to think the same way some, sometimes sometimes people have a different understanding of people have different views on this but sometimes when we grow up with the understanding of church and we sing the line that beautiful song the father turned his face away it doesn't say that in the bible for start what it does say is God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself I'm sure it broke the heart of the fire and what went all went on there and it's, it's, it's holy mystery and I'm sure to watch Jesus become sin for the world broke the heart of the Father but something something that we need to be careful at is that we don't think that somehow the Father is completely uninvolved in the suffering of Jesus no God was in Christ reconciling the world himself he's present he's present in our pain responsibility is in us to a lion and so I'm saying this because right when you're praying through disappointment sometimes it will feel like Good Friday and Holy Saturday sometimes in a sense they get me hopefully you hear my heart when it says sometimes you want to rush to the resurrection and God lives through a Saturday God knows what it was like to wait for Sunday to come yeah and there's a silence and a mystery within that that sometimes you just have to engage with where we don't get all the neat tidy answers that we're looking right away or we don't necessarily even feel this into victory and so sometimes in life right sometimes in life 
for some of you, if you're in the middle of pain at the minute, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to feel what you're feeling. Don't stay there forever, right? Because Sunday is Sunday will come. Sunday's on its way. But you don't have to rush to the resurrection when you haven't been true to the pain that we're feeling. Because something's happening in that time where God continues to transform us. Right, I better keep moving. The last the last few. When I started to realize this permission to be honest for God, and when I realized that God accepted this as a prayer, and as I came to understand that uh, as I came to understand that God was present in my suffering, I came to the point where I had to choose to believe some stuff even when I didn't feel like believing. There comes a point in our journey through this where raw faith has to kick in. And you have to stir up. It's like going to the gym when nothing else in you wants to go. It's like saying I'm going to go and do some exercise when all I want to do is land the sofa and eat a bag of crisps, right? It was like stirring faith muscles within me and standing on the promises of God and going, God, either you are who you say you are or you're not. And it came to the point in my life in this journey as I prayed that my prayers became the prayers of faith where I said, God, either you're the God that brings beauty out of ashes or you're not. God, either you're the God that works all things together for good or the rest of my life is just a meager second best. God, either you can make, make my morning dancing or you can't and god i'm i'm going to be, i'm going to choose to believe that you can but i'm not sitting on the fence anymore i'm going to make a choice to stand on your promises and to remind myself of who you are and how you want to do this who have i in heaven but you lord and on earth there is none beside you my heart and my flesh will fail but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever day after day after a day sometimes tens and twenty times a day that's what I say who have I in heaven but you Lord on earth there's no one to say my heart and my flesh are feeling but you you can you are the only one who can defibrillate my heart back to life only you so either you can or you can't and so God I'm putting it all on you I can't sit in the fence I can't have one foot in and one foot out I can't rely on my own way to get out of this, God. It's either you're going to bring beauty out of ashes or you're not. God, either the rest of my life doesn't have to be just existing to get to the end, cold in the heart and disappointed and feeling that the best days are behind me. Or I can push into what you say, all, all things, all things. Either my thing is part of the all thing or it isn't. Yeah? Those are the kind of prayers that I was praying at that time. And, and some of us, maybe, we just need to stir faith within us to choose to believe I didn't feel like praying that prayer when I prayed it it's easy for me to stand up now and talk about it but I had to rouse my heart and rouse my spirit to say those kind of prayers and as I did that as I did that I started to believe in the grace and the goodness of God and I started to become curious to see it I started to become curious to, to see if God is this God, then where could it be in my story? Allow your prayer of faith to become a prayer of, of insight, right? And so this started to happen months after Lindsay died. And after I'd expressed all this sense of injustice, agony, and disappointment, and anger of God, and then I said, uh, 
I started to realize where I had, in one hand, felt and experienced all this. I started to, to, to see a different way. I started to think about, slowly it started to dawn on me. When I was 17 years of age, and I said to Jesus, you can have my life. All of my ambitions, hopes and plans. I was at conferences like this one, and I was like, Jesus, you can take it all. You can have me, send me wherever you want to do. The joy of just having the sins forgiven and knowing that I wanted to live for him. Having a hunger in my heart to know God and to make him known. And I thought it was all the trip to Africa. And I thought it was all the sermons that he was preaching. But maybe for you, God, when I said you can have my heart and do whatever you want with it. Maybe the, maybe the biggest calling that you were allowing me to be part of was to love a girl that was going to die when she was 23. Maybe you were going to allow me to be the one that got to love her, fulfill her, complete her, so that she knew when she went to heaven she was fully loved. And God, you picked me. You picked me to be that man. You allowed me to be that person. And somehow, through these prayers of faith, choosing to believe in the goodness of God I started to see his goodness in the midst of the mess all around me and I started to think well God I wouldn't choose this way but I wouldn't have wanted you to pick anybody else you let, you let me be the one and so it sort of left me like God I really want to be angry with you still but I can't <laughs> Because you chose me, you chose me to be that one, and you've allowed me to to do and experience something that I never thought that I would. And in that, I've got to know you, God. I've got to know you not just in the power of the resurrection, but in the fellowship of your suffering. Frederick Buchan says the resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. And so I want to encourage you. Hang on. I know, I know it hurts like hell. It hurts like hell. But hang on. Hang on because even in the midst of that, as we're true to the expression of our disappointment, to, uh, what I'm trying to say to you, all of this stuff, all this revelation I got, I believe I only got it because I was almost right from the beginning and tried to be true to that pain. And so then we start to get shards of light coming through. And one of the smartest men I've ever known said something to me in the midst of this and very gently, and he said this, sometimes our journey towards God, Alan, is a stripping away of illusions about God. That's good, isn't it? I wish I said that. Sometimes our journey towards God is a stripping away of illusions about God. And I realized, I thought God owed me one. I, I prayed with an agenda. I thought when I honored God, that would mean long life with Lindsay, you know, wonderful things we do together for him. Well, that was wrong, in a sense. God, for whatever reason, had an, another, another plan, and I could see his goodness throughout it. And in this world where this kind of thing happens, 
God's traces of grace and goodness were on it and throughout it. And it led me to what I would describe in the prayer journey of prayer of relinquishment. I relinquished my own stipulations that subconsciously I was placing on God for how he should honour me and how he owed me one for all I had done for him. And, uh, and all of a sudden I started to realise it was a little bit of a, a selfish streak and this is quite deep, isn't it? Even when it comes to prayer. And I relinquished that to God. I heard somebody say, this is the worst piece of pastoral advice I've ever heard in my life. Let me just caveat that by saying that I heard someone tell me that his grandfather was a chaplain in the war. Had came in and, and uh, a soldier came in and, or a friend that came in and, 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 uh, and said that he was going to, uh, told the chaplain that he was giving up believing in God because his wife died. And the chaplain says, well that's interesting. And he says, well, what do you mean? Because your friend's died, your friend's wife died two weeks ago, and you wouldn't lose your faith then. So I don't encourage you to like come out with that sort of sin if you're like counselling anyone through grace, you know. But it does illuminate a little bit of how we subconsciously hold God to some kind of an agenda with our prayers, doesn't it? Rather than trust ourselves completely and wholly into a perfect Father whose ways are great and good and can be trusted over and above what we think we should be doing. And that's what kind of happened in my life. Last couple of things to say. In the whole thing, embrace the mystery. Embrace mystery, embrace silence and prayer at times. Yeah? Meditate on the goodness of God without always having to talk. Embrace his mystery and his sovereignty within that. Recognize there are some things that sometimes you can't understand. Let your heart be the primary place of connection through difficulty and disappointment, not your head. Yeah? Let your heart continue to engage with God in these times of disappointment and particularly prayerfully. Even if you're not saying anything. So allow the spirit to connect with your heart over and above your head. Let your heart remind you that only God can be trusted to see the bigger and better picture. It's a prayer of wonder. We need to learn how to fall out of our heads sometimes and into his hands. Yeah. Fall out of our own heads and fall into his hands. And then and then finally, it's kind of connected to that prayer of faith. And I suppose where the story for me I, I love to tell is recognize that God is still fulfilling his plans through you, that there is transformation that's happening in that, and that allow him to do that. The, the counsellors talk about this stage, you know, they talk about the classic stages of grief and the last one being acceptance. A wise woman told me who I was seeing helping me journey through my own grief, she said to me, there's, there's a stage even beyond just mild acceptance of what happened. Your, 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 story, your, your story can be resolved. And I wondered what she meant by that. And, didn't really like the word initially, but God can take what we've been through and actually transform it into a thing of beauty. And this is more than just mere fanciful idealistic thinking, by the way. Like, and this is where you have to go with God. God, I, I, either it is or, or it isn't. He, he can bring beauty out of ashes. He is the restorer of our souls. And suffering transforms us God can take it I don't think God gets any pleasure whatsoever out of watching us suffer I've said that already he's present he cries our tears he weeps with us 
he calms down. But because he's God, he can make a thing of beauty out of what seems like a rack in our lives. He can teach us something new. He can make us into the kind of people that he believes that we can be, which is like Jesus. It's unbelievable, isn't it, really, when we think about it? Like, God thinks I can be like Jesus. Like, I don't even think I can be half of half like Jesus. He, he thinks I can. He wants to, he doesn't want to leave me half, 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 some half-baked Christian, yeah? Just to take me right through to be like Jesus. And he uses these times to do that. And uh, I, uh, I, I came to realize that as I, as I wrestled with God like Jacob did in that dark night, in the dark nights that I have where I wrestled with God, I was saying, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you go. I'm not, I can't, I, I can't just accept this. I need to express what I'm feeling to you. And as I wrestled with God, like, like Jacob, we know the story, don't we, that he, he had his hip pushed out of joint and limped for the rest of his life. And I, I remember thinking about this and thinking to myself, you know, imagine, imagine like the days after this when J- Jacob's sons were all sitting around and maybe somebody come to visit and Jacob's walking around the camp trailing a leg behind him limping. And you'll be like, what happened to Dad? Why did he got that limp? And you could probably see the brothers and the grandkids all looking at one another going, uh... We're not quite sure what happened, but that was the night. That was the night that Dad wrestled with God. That that was the night that something on the other side of that Jabbok River. That was the night Jacob went toe to toe with the angel of the Lord, met him face to face. And suppose I started to think, God, if there's, if there's anything that the rest of my life can mark. People look at me and they remember that I'm the one that lost his wife when I was young and all that. But that will not be my ultimate definition. But that somehow they will go, something happened to him during that. Something happened to him on that night in those days after his wife died. He met, he met with God. He went face to face with God. He encountered him in a way that seems different but transformational. And so, uh, my hope is that that's for you. And just to give you an example of one example of how God has done that in my life is I mentioned about how Lindsay and I went to Uganda and we longed when we came back from that first trip to Belgium Secondary School. And so when Lindsay died, and one of the ways I was just trying to get my head focused on something else was said to some of my friends, do you, do you want to try and just do this? We'll just try and build a secondary school. And they were like, hi. <laughs> yeah, let's give it a shot. And I thought, thought this was a way on down the line, but let's try. And so my, my mom at the time when Lindsay was sick, at this verse, she was praying. Uh, it was a verse in Isaiah 49, that Israel would be a light to the nations. And her hope and prayer was that Lindsay's healing and testimony would be a light to the nations but uh, when Lindsay died we forgot about this voice thought, thought mum had got it wrong but uh, mum doesn't often get it wrong and so uh, I went uh, her, her and my sister Grace they decided that they were going to try and raise some money to buy land for the secondary school 
Lindsay died in April 2007. That makes that's September of the same year. On her birthday, my, my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, shared the same birthday, and it was his 30th at the time. And she didn't they obviously didn't want to have a birthday party because it was the same time as Lindsay's. So they thought, well, let, let's just invite a few people around and we'll just make contributions to this land rather than buy presents and, and, and celebrate. And so invited a few people, more and more people wanted to come. I had nothing to do with it at all. They ended up having a book out, I think it was the Armagh City Hotel. 250 people came um, for a meal, shared a little bit of the heart. We needed 10 grand to buy land for the secondary school. People just put money in a bowl and when we counted it up, it was 25 grand. So I went to um, I went to I went to uh, Uganda that next January 2008, and they bought this land for us. It was ten acres on a hill, sitting in the middle of the Ugandan bush, looking down over these little villages with fires going up. And as I stood there and started to imagine what could be, the verse that my mom had prayed for Lindsay came back into my head: "A light for the nation." The primary school that we connected with was called Source of Light. So it seemed that light for the nation, for the secondary school, would be a great name. And uh, I started to imagine, we're going to build a school. We're going to build it in her memory, in Lindsay's memory. And we're going to, we're going to raise up, give young kids a chance of secondary school education. We're going to teach them about Jesus. We're going to teach them the ways of the kingdom. And we're going to send them as missionaries into all the world, that they would be a light to the nations. And uh, that summer, we got 80 people from a church. We built the school that started in 2009, just back last week. Funny story, believe it or not, we supposed to come back last Tuesday. Arrived at the airport in Entebbe, forgot my passport, left it in Kampala. Had to stay for another two days. Eventually, I'm home, I'm here. But I was there just uh, last week. We, we see kids that love Jesus. And uh, William, one of the first boys that Lindsay met when she was there, was an orphan. He lived with Pastor Richard on his floor, slept on his floor. He's now about 21, 22. He loves Jesus. He's a ministry that goes into prisons and tells people about Jesus. He feeds the poor. He doesn't really have any money himself, but he somehow has managed to sponsor two young kids himself that he is now supporting and loving. And somehow God has brought beauty out of an absolute train wreck. Somewhere, in some ways, God has bought glimpses of heaven out of a time that hurt like hell. And if He can do it for me, He can do it for you. But engage with it. Engage with it. Get some people around you that maybe will walk with you through it. And God has restored more than I could ever imagine. Three years later, I, uh, I met another girl called Rachel. We uh, fell in love and got married. She's Amazing, not easy for her picking up someone like me <laughs> in the state I was, but she did. And uh, she, she's been such a blessing in my life. Two girls, two little girls, one's called Annie, one's called Erin, five years old and three years old. And uh, I would not have imagined my life could turn out like this. But it's alright, it's better than alright. God is so good. The Bible says this, and I'll finish with this verse, hope, in Proverbs 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. If you have no hope in your life at the moment, the Bible says we're sick 
We weren't born to be hopeless. We weren't born to carry hopelessness around in our hearts. And the next part of the prophecy is, but when desire comes, it is a tree of life. And I just hope that in my story, for those of you who are maybe a little bit hopeless at the moment, this will stir desire. Because desire will bring a tree of life. Fruitfulness, healing, wholeness can come. And I really, really want to encourage you to preach into that and press towards that. Because God is the God who can bring all things together to do. Let's not say it unless we believe it. And let's not say it unless we're prepared to prove God in it in our lives. Love to pray for you and then I'll hand over to again. Father, thank you that your word says that you have bestowed upon us such a great manner of life that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Lord, I I just want to pray that even, Lord, right now in this room, that you would remind us that you are the God who pours out, pours out such a great manner of love. And God, that that love will meet us wherever we are right now. Lord, for those of us here who are carrying grief, sense of loss, agony of soul, Lord, that has yet been touched by you, but I pray that in the gentle and compassionate ways that only you can do this, Lord, that right now I hold spirit, God of all comfort, that you would allow us and give us the grace to our sense of unzip those parts of our, our heart and our soul to you, and that, Lord, that your comfort would come, your comfort would come, so, so that the comfort that we would receive would overflow out of our lives and be a comfort to others. And so God, we're asking you to move right now, Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into healing, lead us into life, lead us into hope. Thank you to God that you give back double what we've lost. You take back years that the enemy has stolen. And Lord, I pray for fruitfulness to come in the wasteland parts of our life in ways that only you can do for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, uh, just before we part, two things. You will find feedback forms for your seats. I would ask you to fill them in, just take a moment, so that other people will hear and benefit from speakers like Alan. And now I'd like to, it almost seems undignified to ask for applause, but let us applause Alan and what he has brought to us today so that we may have a future through disappointment, through pain. So I say thank you for what God has done.